Good evening, Doxology. My name is Leo. For those of you who don't know me, and I'm a member here, I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from Hebrews chapter four, verses uh, chapter four, verse fourteen through chapter five, verse ten. Um, you can follow along in these blue Bibles that are in the pews uh, in front of you. It's our gift to you. You can keep it if you want, or you can just return it afterwards. You can also follow along on your phone. Again, the sermon scripture is Hebrews chapter four, verse fourteen through chapter five, verse ten. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Thanks so much, Leo. Well, good evening, Doxology. It's good to be back with you. If you're new here, my name is Steve, and I'm really glad you're here. Uh, We are going through the book of Hebrews this fall and next spring, and what Hebrews is about is, can anybody say it? Yeah? All right, you guys need a better teacher. Who's been teaching you? All right. Yeah, persevere, draw near, do it together. Okay, persevere, draw near, do it together. And the theme of today's passage uh, has to do with the theme of Hebrews, and it's there in verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we know this is the purpose of this entire section is because we saw in week one, Hebrews is an exhortation. That's its literary genre. And so anytime we see an imperative, uh, we want to highlight that imperative, and that's going to help us follow the main argument of what Hebrews is all about. And what I love about this imperative is, you know, when you think about imperatives in the scripture, I think we tend to go the negative route. You know, so we think of, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, you don't harden your hearts like we looked at a couple weeks ago. Uh, But as we see today, God also gives us imperatives to refresh us, you know, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that you can receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And I love that. And we we need this passage. Uh, It's one of the sweetest passages in all of scripture. Uh, We need it, first of all, because next week we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6. And Hebrews 6 is one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. And so we need chapter 5 to help us and hold us up, give us the proper perspective as we move into chapter 6. 
Uh, but also we need it because drawing near to the throne of grace is the main way that we persevere in the Christian life. And, you know, if I could articulate what my, like, number one hope is for you guys, anyone who comes into this church, whether you're here for a year or four or ten, um, and for myself, is that each of you guys perseveres to the end. Uh, I would love it if we saw each other when we were, you know, if we make it to 70, 80, or 90, and we're still treasuring Christ. Um, that's a huge win. And as we've seen in Hebrews and what Jesus says himself is that's not a guarantee. And so we, we need to look at this passage drawing near because this is how we persevere uh, as a church family, okay? And so here's how we'll do it. Uh, first, we'll look at uh, what does Christ give us? because he gives us this access to draw near. I'll kind of give you the spoiler ahead of time. What does Christ give us? And then in light of Christ's qualifications as our high priest, which we'll see, uh, how does that impact how we draw near? So first, what does Christ give us? Uh, And he gives us access to the throne of grace. And number two, in light of who Christ is, how do we draw near? Okay, so first, number one, what does Christ give us? Uh, How does this passage say it? And so note the language of high priest that you see scattered throughout. So verse 14 of chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen among, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so uh, what's going on here is the nation of Israel, they had priests, and what the priests' main roles were was, number one, they were to come, along the, they were to come alongside the people in solidarity. So to share their sorrows with them, to be with people as they were sick, to serve as counselors, you could say. And then also what priests did is they would go into the temple, you see, offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, and they would intercede, they would pray on behalf of the people, and they would make sacrifices to God. And you had this one dude, the head honcho, he was the high priest, and what he would do is once per year, he'd go into the inner ring of inner rings of the temple called the Holy of Holies behind a thick curtain, and once per year, he would make atonement for sin on behalf of the people. Um, If this language is confusing you, uh, we're going to get more into it in chapters 7 through 10, but we'll leave it here for now. Basically, the point is, is the priest for the people, especially the high priest, was to give the people mediated access to God. To give folks mediated access to God. And this language may sound strange, okay, like, why do people need mediated access? But I think if we consult our own experience, we see that we use mediated access all the time. So we use priests, like, all the time. We just don't call them priests. So if you've bought a home, you hired a priest called a real estate agent, okay? And they gave you mediated access to the real estate market, right, where they gave you access to the power brokers, and they help you, they help, they you know, navigated all the complex jargon for you. So all you have to do basically is say, I don't want that house. I want that house. I'm willing to pay this much, not that much. And boom, you know, they help you get a home. We do the same thing with lawyers, okay? Like if you're going to court, you want somebody to mediate your presence there, right? To represent you. And so for the Israelites, I think they understood a lot more than we do that if you want to approach God, you need mediated access, (laughs) Right, because you can't just approach a pure and eternal God any more than you can walk up close to the sun. Okay, the sun isn't evil. It's, just, it's the nature of reality. Because the sun's reality is so much greater than yours, you get close to it, you're going to die. The same thing with God. If you walk up to a pure, and pure God who's so much greater than you in his essence, you're going to die. This is why the high priest had to do, you know, follow all these procedures, and if he didn't follow all of them, he would die. Uh, apparently, according to Jewish tradition, they'd tie a, 
a rope around his ankle in case he died in the Holy of Holies. They could pull him out. I'm really glad that's not my job. And so these priests gave people mediated access to God. And what he's saying now is Jesus is our ultimate high priest. What makes him the best high priest is Jesus, through his once-for-all sacrifice, through his flawless life, his death and resurrection, he gives us immediate access to God. Okay, that's why it says now with confidence you can draw near to the throne of grace on your own. And uh, it's a little bit like this. So when I was just a wee lad, uh, my father worked as a, he, he oversaw the finance department of a large law firm. And so if somebody in the firm or, you know, a customer wanted to see him, they'd have to go through the secretary, they'd have limited time, and they couldn't just walk in there and say anything. But me and my five-year-old self, I could just toddle on in there, you know, carrying all my trucks. I'd walk right by the secretary's office, walk right into my father's office. And what would he do? He'd, he'd stoop down on one knee and he'd pick me up and, you know, he'd say, I'm so glad to see you. And, I, and I'd hang out with him, right? And that's the kind of access we get with God our Father, it's one thing to know you're guilt-free in the courtroom, right? But it's another thing entirely to experience the warmth and joy of a loving family when you go home to a living room where you have a loving father and a family who cares for you. And that's this kind of access that we get directly to God. So that's what Jesus gives us, direct access to God. And as we move into how his qualifications affect how we draw near, uh, I'd mentioned earlier that my number one desire for us is to persevere. That was a half-truth um, because I think my greater desire than that is for each of you to really treasure Christ and see how beautiful he is. Um, there's, a, there's a Christian author who I respect, and I've, I've read a number of his works, and he was sharing one time how he said, you know, the best thing my dad ever gave, for, gave me and my siblings was, I mean, yeah, he taught us to be gritty. He taught us to have a hard work ethic. He taught us to have compassion. But the best thing he did for us is he helped us see the beauty of the heart of Jesus. And so I hope for you all and for me, um, the main thing we get out of our time together as doxology is being captured uh, by the irresistibility of the heart of Jesus, and we'll, we'll just kind of scratch the surface as we move into these qualifications of Jesus, okay? And so, um, how is Jesus qualified to be our high priest? How does this impact how we draw near? Uh, the first thing we see is that Jesus is appointed by God. Uh, so look at this. We see this in verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, referring to the office of high priest. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So in Jesus's day, the office of high priest was corrupt. You had this web of Roman authorities and wealthy families. And so usually the person who would step into the office of high priest was the output of the system of bribery and corruption. And so what Hebrews is saying, may that not be so. Okay, the office of the high priest is meant to be someone who isn't there for selfish gain, but to serve the people. Okay, shocker, right? When you have a system where people are there to get something for selfish gain, it's, it's going to be a corrupt system. So what does it say in verse 5? So, therefore, basically, Christ didn't appoint himself. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, that's God, who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's quoting Psalm 2, uh, which we looked at this summer. And so essentially what's going on here is God the Father knew he needed a perfect mediator to intercede on behalf of his people. But there's only one person qualified for the job, Christ. 
And so Christ, in his incarnation, we looked at this uh, in our confession time, in our liturgy earlier, even though he was equal with God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So in Christ's incarnation, he submits himself to the will of God the Father, appointing him as high priest. And because Jesus is the only one qualified for this, he didn't come into the role because he worked the political system appropriately. He was appointed by God who knew who the perfect mediator would be. What this means is we can approach the throne of grace trustfully. We can approach the throne of grace trustfully. Because when you approach, you know that there isn't some hidden side to Jesus that he's not showing you. And here's, here's what I mean. So over this past year, there was a famous evangelist, you know, world-renowned, doing a lot of work in the name of Christ. And leading up to his death, and then after his death, it you know, more and more information came out that this individual was uh, committing horrific abuse. And one of the things that made it so tragic, um, of course, the number one thing were, were the victims who experienced this. And then, but also what made it tragic was so many of the high-level staff didn't know what was going on. And I listened to an interview the other week where one of the staff members was being interviewed about, you know, like, what were you thinking during that? And, you know, he's, um, you know, blaming himself a lot because, you know, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I see that? And what the interviewer asked him, one of the questions that stood out to me said, how did this whole catastrophe not make you doubt the character of Christ? Because right, that's often what happens, right? When we see abuse, like how, like, how is this happening, especially someone working in the name of Jesus? And he said, you know, when I went through this, yes, profound disorientation, yes, intense anger. But also what I was thinking throughout this is I remember thinking to myself, how relieving it is that I'll never discover a hidden side to Jesus. Like, there's never going to be an ugly side of Jesus or some kind of ulterior motive that he's keeping back from you. And he, he went on to say that, you know, I'm realizing more and more how much unlike Jesus is to us in the best ways. And so contrary to this situation making me doubt Jesus more, it actually made me want to draw near to him and promote him more. And so for you, I know for a lot of you, you know, there have been a lot of Christian leaders who have fallen, and that it, it, it affects our faith. But one thing you can know, because Christ was appointed by God, and you can, approach him tr- you can approach him trustfully, is the more you find out about Christ, he actually, he becomes more beautiful, more trustworthy. And even the best of human beings in your life are going to let you down in some way, shape, or form, Christ is the only one you can be fully vulnerable with and know that you're going to be met with nothing less than someone who is out for your 100% good pleasure and goodwill. So that's the first thing. Okay, because Christ was appointed by it, we can approach trustfully. Okay, what a gift. Number two, let's, let's keep going. It gets even better. Uh, number two, um, how is Jesus qualified to be our high priest? And we see that in verse 2. Chapter 5, it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Okay, and so in its immediate context, this is talking about the high priest here. So the high priest had to be familiar with suffering and weakness. So as he's alongside the people, he's not unduly harsh toward them. Okay, but for Christ, now the, the ultimate priest, he deals the most gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And here's what's absurd. It's saying, Christ deals gently with whom? The moderate failures? The mildly irritating individuals? No, he's, he's gentle with the ignorant and wayward. 
So this covers the, the full spectrum of people who are hard to deal with. Okay, ignorant is that, and that includes those, um, off, uh, it, inclu- it includes the unintentional but often egregious wrongs that maybe people have committed against you or that you commit against others in God. And then wayward is this, it's the idea of more this deliberate obstinance. Okay, but it says Christ, in dealing gently with the ignorant and wayward, um, he's always gentle. You and I were selective with our gentleness. You know, you notice you tend to be the most patient and gentle toward people who have the same weaknesses and struggles as you. But when you see someone who is just incredibly weak, it's something that you're particularly strong in, it's really hard to be patient with them. You know, I mean, sometimes, hopefully this isn't just me, but sometimes in in your heart, you're thinking, you're like, just stop it. Just stop it. (laughs) Like, it's not that hard. Like, why can't you be like me? Okay, but Jesus isn't selective in his gentleness. And then the author goes on to say, here's why he's able to do that. Okay, so we see it in verse 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So a number of weeks ago in chapter 2, so I won't rehash it all here, but we saw that because Jesus is without sin, this doesn't make him less familiar with our temptations, but it actually makes him more familiar with temptation than anybody else. Because the longer you resist temptation, the harder and harder it gets. And Jesus did it for his entire life. But number two, why he's able to deal gently with you, and this is the main thing we'll focus on under this heading, is look at verse 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. We'll get back to that. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So it's getting at how the life, of, the life experience of Jesus makes him more sympathetic toward you and more able to deal gently with you in your waywardness and in your ignorance. And the key here is uh, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. And uh, we said back in chapter 2, we would go over what we meant by what does it mean that Jesus became perfect, so alas, the day has finally arrived, and we get to see what this means. Okay, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? And here's the best I was able to gather learning from people smarter than me. So, because the question is, it can't mean that he was sinful, right, because Jesus was without sin. But then, how did the one who defines perfection become perfect? How did the one who spoke the world into existence learn obedience? And it's because of this. So when we think about being made perfect, we often think of it in terms of a spectrum going from sinful to sinless. And that is part of what it means, and that's what Jesus is doing in us. But there's another model for being made perfect, and that's maturity. Right? So you're not in sin, but you're learning through hard life experience to obey in greater and greater difficulty. You see, there's a maturity that takes place. And so, for example, you don't expect of a five-year-old the same things that you expect of a 15-year-old. And this is, the author here is getting at the full humanity of Jesus. He was fully God, but he was fully human. And so what this means is Jesus, as he grew up, he learned to obey in increasingly difficult circumstances. Okay, so that, be, that he would be ready for the harder trials when they came. You know, so just as a little kid, he had to endure the suffering of being a refugee. 
As he got older, he had to endure the scorn that came from him living in a lower-class family where he got made fun of for being mediocre. And so as he got older and older, what happened was is that this is why he was able to withstand the temptation of the devil when he was around age 30 alone in the wilderness. He wasn't ready for that at age 7. Right? He was able to withstand the the, the temptation to take power for himself when the Roman authorities and the Roman guards were spitting on him and whipping him. And he could have easily taken power for himself. But no, he gave himself up for others. He wasn't ready for that at age 12. Okay, so there's this amazing reality that as Christ learned through obedience, um, through suffering, this makes him able more than anybody to deal gently with us. Because he knows. He's overqualified for the job. It's, it's a little bit like this. Um, so I, uh, I heard this story about a pastor who he had to have this medical procedure done. And he had to, take, he had to drink a gallon of this awful liquid. Okay, it made you feel super sick and bloated. You had to drink it really fast and then get on this table for a scan. And the scan would scan for stuff that the liquid you know, enabled. I'm not a medical professional, right? But it could make it easier. Hey, why are you laughing? It could make it easier for you know, the machine to, to see things. And so he takes this, he downs this awful liquid. He's feeling sick and nauseated. He gets on the table and there's this technician. And this technician was a member of his church. And he was a young man, very curt personality, terrible bedside manner. And, you know, the guy basically just treated the, the man who was getting the procedure done, the pastor, like a cog in a machine, like not even like a human, and then just, you know, sho- shoved him out of there really quickly. It's like, oh, well, that was interesting. Well, a year or two later, he had to go back to get the same procedure done. And he, he goes in for the procedure, drinks the awful liquid, goes in, and he gets on the table, and it's the same technician. He's like, oh boy, here we go again. But the technician's demeanor had completely changed. Like, he was super gentle toward him. He's like, okay, you know, do, you, do you need a blanket to get comfortable? I'm sorry, and I, I know it sucks. You know, we're, we're going to get through this together. And so finally, toward the end, the pastor just looks at him. He goes, you know, if I may be so bold. When I came in here last year, you weren't like this. You know, what changed in between? And the young man said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but since I saw you the first time, I had to undergo the same procedure and I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And don't you see, the impossible news of the gospel, and it's the only way of life, the only religion that says anything like this, is that the God who upholds the heavens willingly emptied himself and got on the table, not just for a procedure, Okay, but for suffering and death itself so that he can sympathize with you and give you full access to the throne of grace that you can receive mercy and grace in time of need. And so what this means is when you approach Christ in your tears, you're going to the only God who's ever cried. Okay, when, you, when you draw near to the throne where Christ is, in your loneliness, you're drawing near to the only God who's ever felt misunderstood by everybody. When you draw near to the throne where Christ is in depression and anxiety amid a panic attack, you're drawing near to the only God who ever had to be brave.
And that's why he can deal gently with you and why he wants to deal gently with you. Okay, yes, because of his character, but also because he's lived it. And so how do you approach? How do you not approach? Uh, but how do you approach? You approach honestly. You approach honestly because, because we know, you know, we tend to fully open up about something that's really ugly about ourselves. Um, often, you know, people distance themselves. You know, you know, a friend or a spouse may have done this where they say something like, whoa, I just need some space for a little bit now that I'm knowing this. Okay, and then we can talk. But Christ doesn't do that with you. When he sees your dysfunction, when he sees the ugly parts about you, it ignites his compassion. Okay, he runs toward you in it to make you whole. And so as you approach Christ, we looked at this all throughout the Psalms, but I think a lot of us are still learning to get it. Is you don't need to play act. You don't need to put on, you know, like fake, pious, religious jargon. And here's the thing, because when you do it, Christ can't help a false version of you. He can only help the real you. And so you need to go there and just say, here's what I'm going through. I'm underqualified for this. I just realized this part about me. I just had to do this this week with something, and it was painful. But it was only by going through it that I actually experienced the gentleness and the healing of Jesus. Okay, so he deals gently with you, even in your waywardness. Okay, it's unqualified. So the only way to experience judgment from Christ is to not go to him. But you run to him and you experience nothing but warmth and open arms. Okay, and then number three, finally, how is Christ qualified? Okay, we approach trustfully, we approach honestly. Okay, and number three, how is Christ qualified? He overcame the most severe of trials. And we see this in verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He offered up prayers with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. How can you not think of Gethsemane and Golgotha here? And I hope I can get through this. So Jesus famously quoted Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? And what's fascinating about him quoting Psalm 22 is Psalm 22 is a lament. Okay, it's an expression of utter anguish and forsakenness. But Psalm 22 isn't just a lament. It's an expression of utter trust. Psalm 22 is the cry of somebody going through unbelievable agony and trusting in God the Father. That's the mediator we need. Okay, someone who undergoes the terror of Gethsemane and the pain at Golgotha and not once ceases to trust God. That's the voice you want whispering in your ear when you want to quit. That's the one you want encouraging you and strengthening you when you feel weak. 
the one who can not only sympathize with you, but in the midst of the greatest trial, prevailed. And so how do you approach someone like that? Confidence. And I think along with confidence, tearful gratitude. How else can you approach? Okay, the one amid his test prevailed is more than able to give you grace in time of need, come what may. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for appointing Christ as our priest, and I pray that uh, tonight's passage will, in even just a small but powerful way, uh, help all of us to see Christ as beautiful and to make it uh, all the way to the end, uh, not with a somber face, but full of joy. Thank you so much that we can approach you directly right now, this evening. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.